Um, the passage that I'm preaching on is Exodus 1, 22 through 2, 10. So I will pray for us and then read that, um, and then we can begin. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the beautiful weather and the opportunity to be outside worshiping you and uh, opening up your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that as I preach this evening that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear from you, that your spirit would be on me, and that I would preach your word with conviction, and that it would go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Lord, be with us as we spend this time just considering what you say to us through the birth of Moses and um, the greater Savior that he points to. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Exodus 1, through 2, 10, if you don't mind standing and following along for the reading of God's word. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She set the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent to her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So last summer, um, Jennifer and I took our boys to Florida, um, and we decided to drive the trip, thinking it would be a fun experience, and it was. Um, and we had stopped halfway down in South Carolina for an evening just to break up the 16-hour drive and got up the next morning and continued our way down to Florida. And everything was running really, really smooth uh, until I got down to about the Tampa Bay area and I missed the last turn, one of the last turns that I needed to make to go into uh, Madeira Beach, which is on the Gulf side between Clearwater and St. Pete. So... No big deal, a little bit frustrating because I was ready to be done driving and we were all ready to be done riding. Um, and I missed that corner, so went down the road not far, got off, got back on, made the corner and came to the last red light that I needed to go through and it was kind of a yield for me. So I came to a stop, yielded for traffic and when I went to go again, my throttle was dead. Like I stepped on the throttle and the van just sat there. All right, and then all of a sudden it started going again, and this is weird. So I looked down, and my check engine light and my check um, charging system was on, and my check battery light was on, and I'm like, this is not good at all. So we limped our way in, couldn't put the car in reverse, so we 
kind of made this big loop in the parking lot and pulled into our parking spot and found out the next morning that our alternator had gone out and it stopped charging the battery. Like, all right, so we called AAA, they fixed that, and we had our vacation and we left the following Saturday and we're on our way up through and we get to Georgia and we stop for lunch or stop for yeah, stop for lunch. We leave the IHOP, get on 95 and we're heading north and we just hit the bridge for Savannah, Georgia. And my check engine light comes on again, my stop engine light comes on again, and the van is missing consistently. So it's like a something not right with this van, completely not right with this van. So we pulled over and again for the second time in one week called AAA and now I'm sitting alongside 95 in Savannah, Georgia with no transportation. It's Saturday in the South. If you're from the South or you've been to the South, at noon on Saturday, everything shuts down and nothing opens back up again until 8 or 9 o'clock Monday morning. So thankfully, there's this thing called Uber. So they came and picked us up alongside 95. So you can take it from me that Uber will pick you up alongside of a highway. Um, and thankfully, we were near hotels and restaurants and everything was taken care of from that uh, standpoint. So we ended up getting the car fixed to get it on a car carrier to come home um, and we brought the train home. But I tell you that story uh, not because it's interesting, and it is, um, and not because it brings back good memories, which it does, but I tell you that story because it highlights something that our passage points to this evening. And that is this, that God's timing is perfect and his providential care over his people is for their good and for his glory. And in our passage this evening, we see this as we consider two truths. One, the need for a savior. And two, God's provision of a savior. So first, our need for a savior. Our text comes in a critical point in a narrative that's been running since Genesis 37. So to recap that quickly, God uses Joseph and his, the sale of Joseph into slavery to bring God's people from the, their land where they're living down into Egypt to protect them from a famine. And in that time period, God is multiplying his people. But in the beginning of Exodus, we read that the king which had promoted Joseph had died. And there was a new king over Egypt who didn't know him and this, this new king is fearful of the people of Israel. And he says, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and flee the land. So his response is to enslave the Israelites and to force them to do hard labor and then to kill off all of the male babies as they're born. This plan backfires thanks to the faithfulness of two midwives. And because of these, this faithfulness, God again multiplies and blesses the nation. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. But right here, in chapter 1, it ends with Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every woman, or every girl, daughter live. Now, we should be struck by this if you think about it. This is a man who is a king over the land, and he is so afraid of these people and so willing to protect his life that he's willing to commit murder to do it. And not only murder, infanticide. He wants to kill every newborn baby. 
But what we see displayed in Romans 121 is that sin makes us futile in our thinking. John Calvin says, if he, Pharaoh, had not been transported with wrath and struck with blindness, he would have seen that the hand of God was against him. But when the reprobate are driven to madness by God, they persevere obstinately in their crimes. And not only so, like the deranged or frantic, they dash themselves with greater audacity against every obstacle. And we see that in Pharaoh. He asks the midwives to kill the children, and they don't. So he says, okay, fine, I'm going to go to the women, my people, and have them kill every male boy that they, that they find. But there's a deeper reality that's taking place in this. In Genesis 3.15, after the fall into sin, and God is pronouncing his curses, he turns to the serpent, and he curses the serpent. And he says, I will put en enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And as we follow the narrative through Scripture, we see the seed of Satan and the enmity that is placed between it and the seed of the woman. This word translated enmity bears the idea of a hostile disposition or personal hostility. And in each instance, the word usage is between two parties and is a matter of life and death. And it extends to the point of human destruction. So when God curses the serpent, he sets up a new order for humanity. On the one side is the seed of the serpent, and Jesus places his enemies in this. In John 8, he says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. And on the other hand, you have the seed of the woman, who is also a spiritual posterity, but this refers to believers who attempt to keep the law of God and are witnesses to the world of the gospel. John, in Revelation 12, 17, displays this animosity and this enmity when he writes, the dragon, meaning Satan, became furious with the woman and went off to make war of the, with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of, the, of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So it's true that in Pharaoh we see his own sin being played out as he seeks to persevere and preserve his kingdom. But on a deeper level, we see Satan through Pharaoh is seeking to destroy the godly line and remove the possibility of a savior being born. But before we come down too hard on Pharaoh, there's two things we need to consider. The first is if it were not for the grace of God, we would be just like Pharaoh. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes that you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were carrying out the passions of our flesh and the desires of the body and mind. And by nature, we were like children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God made us alive together with Christ. We've been, Jen and I have been doing a devotional with our boys, um, and two main characters in that devotional are Cassie and Caleb. And this past week, there was a new brother-sister duo that was introduced into the story, Mary and Mac. Mary and Mac in the story aren't Christians, and they're actually deliberately very mean to Cassie and Caleb. Two lessons this week were centered around two separate verses to help Cassie and Caleb understand why Mary and Mac are so mean. The first is Jeremiah 24, 7. He says, I, God, will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. God's the active player in that, and without that action on God's part, none of us can come to know him. And the second was Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, and he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, 
out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But it was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. But it is simply because the Lord loves you. It's very important that we remember this truth as we speak with other people and observe the fallen world around us and be slow to judge non-believers by their, for their actions. They are blinded by their sin, and we, in fact, would be too if it were not for God opening our eyes. John Newton put it this way. He said, a man who is truly illuminated will no more despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were opened, would take a stick and beat every other blind man he ever met. So we must pray that God would open the eyes of the spiritually blind if we want people to repent and believe the gospel. But there's a second truth we need to see. We, as believers, can become deceived by indwelling sin that remains in our own hearts. James reminds us that it's our passions warring within us that cause fights and quarrels among believers. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You may never physically take someone else's life, unlike Pharaoh, who was willing to commit murder, or exchange punches with somebody over the newest iPhone. At least I hope not. But have you ever said something about someone simply to make yourself look better? Or have you spread gossip or flat-out slandered someone to gain a higher standing with the group or to appear to fit in with the cool kids? Or maybe you've given someone a cold shoulder discontinued a friendship because they achieved or received something you wanted but didn't get? These are some of the multitude of ways in which believers can become deceived by sin. We've heard this before. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. See, sin impairs our judgment and makes it difficult to interpret our experiences rightly. So in Pharaoh, we see the Israelites' need of a Savior physically. But spiritually, in Pharaoh, we see all of our needs for a Savior spiritually. And if Exodus were to end right here at verse 22, it would be a hopeless story. And like I said before, this is a critical part in Israel's history. Right now, they have the leading power of the world against them. They're slaves, beaten down and tired from being worked so hard. And you would think that at this point in the story... There would be a mighty king who would sweep in, would take out Pharaoh, and would rescue his people. But into this narrative, we get a birth announcement. Why? Because God's timing is always perfect, and his providential care over his people is for their good and for his glory. And in this birth announcement, we see his provision of a Savior. Exodus 2, 1 and 2, we read, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived, bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Why would Moses bother to add this bit of detail, that a Levite man took a Levite woman and had a child? It's because it was the priests of the tribe of Levi, the Levitical priests, who represented God to the people and people to, the, to the God. So think of this little sentence this one verse, as Moses' credentials. And we all understand this in our own day and age. When you walk into the doctor's office, you're hoping to see some kind of MD credential on the doctor's gown. And what's even better is to see his diplomas or even the certificates or what he gets from his med school. You're hoping that the person who is 
working on and taking care of your body is credentialed to do it. Moses is doing the same thing. You can imagine having grown up in Pharaoh's household and then returning to his people after he flees. They would question whether or not he is even an Israelite, let alone from the tribe of Levi. And here he's telling him that he is. This fact that he is from the tribe of Levi is what qualified him to be the mediator of the covenant between God and Israel. But even more, as the narrative unfolds, this credentialing does not stop with his birth. Over the next eight verses, we see a series of events that leads to Moses being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, which further qualified him to leave his people out of Egypt. See, being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter means that Moses will be raised in the court of, e in the court of Egypt. He'll be taught and come to understand their customs, their religious system, and the inner workings of the royal household and family. And if you consider more of Moses' life, you'll realize that in the next chapter, as he flees and spends time in Midian being a shepherd, that was God's way of preparing him to lead the Israelites through the wilderness. God's providence in the life of Moses gave him the necessary training to do what God had called him to do. Why? Because God's timing is always perfect, and his providential care over his people is for their good and for his glory. But let's be clear, you and I are not Moses. But that doesn't mean that our experiences haven't qualified us to walk beside others and for God to use us in the future. Whatever hardship or trial, sin, temptation you struggle against, or even success, maybe you've been super successful in something and you've learned how to be humble and grateful in that success. Whatever the situation, you can, by God's grace, come alongside a brother or sister in Christ who is suffering and struggling in the same way and walk with them. Show them how God was faithful to you and what scriptures you used to orient yourselves when you couldn't see God's goodness. So as Christians, we don't believe in chance or that anything happens randomly. Instead, we believe that the Creator God is active in His creation and is working in and through all things. If you've been a part of our Sunday morning Sunday school, we've been studying God's providence. And the catechism question we've been using is question 11 from the Westminster Shorter Catechism which asks, what are God's works of providence? The answer is, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of his creatures and all their actions. And though this is true, that does not mean that our life will not be without hardship, or that the plans God has for us will always be easy. So please don't hear me if this sermon you feel is downplaying suffering, because it's not. There are many who know, we know, who are going through things right now that cannot be explained. And in these times, the goodness of God may not be evident. And that reality you can see in our passage. Think about Jacobin. Ancient custom would have been to nurse a child for three to four years and then weed them. So imagine over those four years as she is nursing and caring for her son, she realizes that at the end of this, when I wean this child, I need to give him up. Not only do I need to give him up, but I need to give him up to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh is the man who wanted to have him killed not two years earlier. So imagine the grief that she's thinking, the heartache that's going through her mind, the questions that she has for God. Why now? Why did you give me a son? Why do I have to give him up? Why couldn't I be somewhere else? Why couldn't Pharaoh? Why this? Why that? Why now? Why me? So this story isn't without it's hardship. And some of those, we don't have those questions in Scripture, but she was a person just like we are. 
But as, and you, if you consider what happens when Moses is given up, that hardship is the very good that Jochebed needed because later in his life, Moses would leave, lead the people out of slavery. He would be the deliverer that, Egypt, that Israel needed. We don't always know what God is doing, but we can be sure that he is always working for his good and for the glory of his people. And if you trust in Christ and are worried this day about where your life is going, know that God will work everything together for your ultimate good. We don't have to know how he is doing this or what the end will be. All we need to do is trust the Lord and obey his revealed will, which is the word of God. Now, some may be thinking, how do I do this? How do I know that what is happening in my life is for my good? We can know this by looking in faith to the greater Savior that Moses points us to, which is Jesus Christ. See, in Jesus, we have a Savior who was born just when his people needed him. Paul writes in Galatians that when the fullness of time had come, in other words, at the perfect time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Christ also was delivered from the hand of an angry and fearful king through the faithfulness of his family and providential care of God's hand, and raised in such a way as to increase in the wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He too was qualified to deliver his people, both in his human lineage, being the promised seed of Abraham from the line of David, and in the fact that he's God in the flesh, John 1, 1 through 18. But even more qualified than Moses, because he's perfect and blameless. Remember, Moses commits murder in the next chapter. He's able to offer the perfect sacrifice for our sins and to be raised on the third day for our justification and is right now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Seated. Don't miss that. He's replacing the Levitical priests, a priest who the writer of Hebrews tells us never sits down. Why? Because his work is never finished. Hebrews 10, 11 through 12 and 14 is every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And it's in the death of Christ that we see the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent find its fulfillment. In Christ's death, the serpent, Satan, bruised his head or his heel, but Christ crushed his head. At the very moment when Satan thinks he's one, God in his providence and his sovereignty is turning the ultimate evil into the ultimate good. How? God's timing is always perfect. And his providential care over his people is for their good and for his glory. If you remember back to the story that I told in the beginning, if I hadn't missed the exit on my way to Florida, I probably would not have known that my van was having issues because in the time that it took me to turn around was the exact time that it would have been from the stoplight to the house. I probably would have gotten to the house, shut my van off, and not known there was a problem until I went to start it again that would have set off a chain reaction of events that would have, could have derailed the trip more than it did. Now, if you would have asked me in the moment what I was thinking or feeling about the situation, I probably would not have had that answer. And some of us have the same feeling now as we go through life. We can't in this moment confidently say by what we're seeing 
that God's timing is always perfect, but it is. Upon reflection, I'm able to see that kindness. And I pray and trust that through your life and in your life, the same will be true for you. Because God has given us his son, those who look to him in faith can be sure that whatever happens in their life, God's timing is perfect and his providential care over his people is for their good and for his glory. He has seen our need for a savior and he has provided one. Amen.